welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast number 140. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and it's been a crazy week in my email inbox as the travel industry in the UK ramps up the pressure on the government to relax travel rules. I'm getting all kinds of airlines telling me summer's here, travel is on, book a vacation. I admit there are some pretty good deals floating around, but I'm not really sure with the potential for quarantine whether I'm really ready to book anything just yet. Also busy in my inbox is the fact that now we're halfway through the year, I expect the next big thing will be the 2022 trends. I don't know if anyone else has noticed this, but there seem to be so many companies and products lately that combine two words into one and use a capital letter for the first letter of what would have been the second word. I think that might be 2022's trend. School's out here in Scotland, so cue the rain, although so far it's been warm, at least for Scotland. I do see that there's been some very unseasonably warm weather in the U.S. Northwest, in Washington, Idaho, Oregon, and also in British Columbia and other parts of Canada. So hopefully if you're in any of those regions, everything is okay. It's been so warm here that the dog doesn't want to walk anywhere, although I can't say that I blame him. Not that he wants to watch the Euros with me either, although those will soon be over as well. But it appears like it won't be that long before we can go and watch some live sport again here in the country. I see how some stadiums will be allowed 10,000 in them. The games I go to, they could only dream of 10,000. It's more like 10. It's definitely great seeing crowds at games, whether it's baseball in the US or even in some of the games at the Euros. It does make such a difference. Although I must say I'm not impressed when they start abusing the players. It's also been a good week for hay fever, or more to the point, very good for the manufacturers of products to stop me wanting to stick a knitting needle down each ear and itch my eyes for two hours while sneezing constantly. So I should tell you who's on the podcast this week. We have conversations with Jeff Doucette, General Manager of Field Agent Canada, Gil de Cardenas, CEO of Cacique, and Dr. Ari Arbo, co-founder of Imagine Dairy. And of course, we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at StoneX. Before I get to the news, there's some other news. Actually, it's almost more like a commercial. There's a Dairy Reporter webinar coming up on July the 29th, and the subject is the growing field of dairy alternatives. As usual, it will be live, so it'll be just like the podcast, only with all of my mistakes for the world to hear. You can register online at dairyreporter.com. So let's take a look at some of the news you may have missed over the past seven days. It's not a substitute for actually reading them, as that also boosts my stats, but maybe it'll pique your interest and you'll read one or two of them in full. The new EU Common Agricultural Policy Reform has been given the thumbs up by the European Dairy Association, but it's been slammed by environmental groups. We had two articles on labelling. There's now a new label to improve consumer trust in A2 milk products, and a group is launching a label scheme that will include environmental information on it. Illy and Mengnu are among the companies joining Lamipack in full recycling chain collaboration in China. The EBRD and Hamcor Bank are financially supporting a dairy company in Uzbekistan. And Donkey Milk is on the agenda for the Italian Parliament. An Orla Lockerbie student in Scotland has won the SDT Eden Student of the Year Award. 
Sealed Air has made thermoformable webs recycle ready, and we had our monthly roundup of new products. If you do have new products that you want to showcase to the world, do get in touch with us by email. Tetra Pak is investing 100 million euros in a plant in France to expand sustainable European manufacturing, and you can read all of these and many more at dairyreporter.com. So let's get to the first of this week's guests. The June 2021 edition of the Canadian Fluid Milk Report has been published by Field Agent Canada. It compares the prices Canadians pay for one of the most common items in the grocery basket, and that's 2% milk. And it shows where the most expensive milk is and where the cheapest is. To find out more, we chatted with Jeff Doucette, General Manager of Field Agent Canada. If we can just get a little bit of background on Field Agent Canada. Yeah, Field Agent Canada is a market research firm. We are a crowdsourced market research firm. So we have 150,000 people in our panel and they've downloaded our mobile app and we get them to collect data, answer surveys all across Canada to help meet the data needs of our clients. And one of the things that um, has really resonated over the last five or six years has been our milk price report that we publish usually about once a year. And so that's just a great use of field agent technology because we can send the agents out to the stores all across Canada, collect the pricing information, verify with the photos, and then aggregate all of that data into the report that we produce. We get a lot of traction with it because milk tends to be a pretty good indicator of overall pricing in the grocery marketplace. So what did you find in the 2021 version? Yeah, what really stood out in the version uh, where we collected data in May was that the prices were up almost across the board. In 18 of the 20 markets we measured, we saw price increases, fairly consistent overall price increases. Nationally, the average price went up about 3.6% per liter. And we did have one market where the price, the retail price jumped up 10% year over year. And we did have one market that had a fairly substantial price decrease of about 6%. But those were really the anomalies. The overall level of pricing has stayed consistent across the country in, in that in Canada, we have a lot of regional variations in price. And those variations have stayed constant. But we did see the price of milk inching up pretty much in every market that we measure. And has it been affected at all by the pandemic? Uh, I don't think it's been affected by the pandemic per se. It was really interesting in the fall of last year, we were seeing articles about farmers being instructed to dump milk because the demand wasn't there for milk products. But the real impact of the milk prices is that the whole platform in Canada is based on a cost plus recovery um, in terms of setting the gate price for milk at the farmer level. So if costs went up overall to produce per liter, then that allows the farm gate cost to go up. And then those costs sort of cascade through the retail chain. We also see retailers being able to set local prices. So we do do realize that that end price for milk is set by the retailer and the competitive factors do tend to play into the overall retail price. But even in the market that is the least expensive milk in the country, which is Sudbury, Ontario, small town, not really intuitive, even in that market, the prices went up overall by 5.3%. So we did see 
increases even in the cheapest markets in Canada. And has plant-based dairy alternatives made an impact? I think anecdotally and and working with some customers in that plant-based space, we know their volumes are way up. Oat is obviously doing extremely well. Um, It's doing very well here in Canada. We do see at retail stores that the holding capacity for plant-based products is still adjusting to demand. So we do see a lot of other stocks on the weekends and that sort of thing. So I think the competitive pressures are there from milk alternatives, and maybe that's impacting volumes, which would then impact the cost of production, which would then end up with a legislated price increase. So you know, I think it's all tied together, whether it's a direct impact or if it's people that are using milk alternatives in different ways that are driving that volume, but it is all sort of tied together at some point. And in the report itself, I saw the um, breakdown of the report and the communities. How did you choose the communities? For example, there's not many rural communities. And then when it comes to some of the provinces, there's only a couple in Quebec. There's only one in New Brunswick. Yeah, we sort of kind of need to keep the report a little bit tight because, yeah, we could go very deep. And what we wanted to do is is to have about 20 markets that we could compare the prices on an, on a regular basis and make sure that we're able to get agents out to collect that data locally. But absolutely, if you were to think about, you know, even in Newfoundland, where we only measure St. John's, there is a huge difference in the price of milk that you might find in Happy Valley Goose Bay in Labrador. And that milk actually comes into Labrador from Quebec. It's not milk that's produced in Newfoundland. So we really think that outside of the major areas, the prices are higher. But what we are trying to identify as part of this study is actually just the regional differences. The fact that Ontario, with a very efficient producer system and a large population and a large processing industry, has really inexpensive milk comparatively to the rest of the country, Versus in Atlantic Canada, you have the most expensive milk in the country, you have smaller farms, smaller producers, and also you're losing processing capacity, which is changing the dynamic and making it less efficient to produce the milk, which then means that the consumers there pay significantly more than the rest of the country, up to 30% more. And how about the border effect? What did you see in the differences in communities that are close to the border? Yeah, it's interesting. So in a market like Windsor, Ontario, which is right across the river from Detroit, it is one of the cheapest places in Canada to buy milk. But it's, you know, right now in Ontario, it's one of the more expensive places in Ontario. So Ontario generally is more expensive and and the cross-border communities that we measured are less expensive. They're all by far less expensive, even when you factor in exchange and that sort of thing. We don't necessarily see that the price of milk is being affected by what's happening across the border, mainly because there are minimum retail prices in Canada that are set as part of this whole dairy system. And even if a retailer wanted to charge less and compete with Walmart in Detroit or Walmart in Buffalo, they can't because they would be selling it below cost and they're not able to do that. So it really is a cost structure issue, but we did see milk in the U.S. being 20 to 25% cheaper than across the border from the Canadian store. Right. I noticed there was like Amherst, New York was 
in there, but not any of the U.S. border communities like Calais, Maine or Port Huron or Sault Ste. Marie. I mean, was there a deliberate idea to not include U.S. border communities? Would there be any big differences? No, it wasn't intentional. So when we did just survey five Walmart stores across the border, so they are in border communities. So Holton is across the river, you know, is the closest entry point compared to Fredericton. St. Albans is the closest point to Montreal. Um, Amherst is across from Niagara Falls. Grand Forks is close to Winnipeg. So again, there's a distance there involved, but we didn't measure the milk price in the small community that's across the river from the border crossing. Ironically, here in Alberta, the U.S. border crossing is at Milk River, but it's a very small town. It's a very small location. So we we wanted to keep the measurements to major centers as much as possible. Speaking of the U.S., how is the trade issues with the U.S. feeding into this? Yeah, it's been really interesting you know, with the USMCA, the new what they used to call NAFTA. But the first official complaint by the U.S. to the USMCA was around milk access into the Canadian market. As part of that negotiation with the Trump administration, there was a large lobby of the uh, sort of Midwest dairy farmers who wanted more access to the Canadian marketplace. The Canadians granted access as part of that negotiation, but the U.S. complaint is that we're making it really difficult to actually get that access in, in reality. I do think that in the Canadian marketplace, you have a very strong dairy lobby as well. So it's really this battle of political will of everyone's trying to please these pretty powerful lobbies on both sides of the border. But I think you will see opening up of more dairy products being able to come into Canada from the U.S. But we're also seeing you know, dairy products coming into Canada more and more from Europe as part of the free trade deal with Europe as well. So it really creates this problematic situation for Canadian producers and processors and the model that's set up here under the quota system is that everything is cost-based. Hypothetically, products could come in from more efficient producing markets like the U.S. and undercut the prices of Canadian products just because they have the efficiencies of scale of production. And so it does sort of highlight some of the challenges of this cost-based model. And, you know, quite frankly, I wish that you know, I could just go to my customers and say, hey, my costs are up, you know, 7%. So I got to take my price up 7%. The, the reality is the the dairy industry has a bit of an advantageous system. And then on the other side, that's totally set up to, you know, protect and ensure we have a Canadian dairy industry that will be around for the long term. The real challenge is, again, you go back to the geography and each province is also trying to protect its own dairy industry. So that is creating a lot of inefficiency. So, it, you know, for me, if I could wave a wand and make the market a better place and there would be some pain for some and some gain for others would be to have much, much more of a national market for milk, both from a production and a processing perspective so that we wouldn't have one part of the country paying 30 or, you know, potentially 45% more than another part of the country for the same product. And that's really what we have. It's literally 45% price difference, which is pretty amazing for a product. And if we were to look at two liter of Coca-Cola in those two marketplaces, 
I bet you if we went to Walmart, we would be within a percentage point or two for that product. And that's because they have national distribution, national production, and they can be really, really efficient with it. And I guess there's there's also issues in terms of the size of the Canadian market when you compare it to California produces the most milk in the US and it's got more population in California than Canada does. And you also have the distribution of people as well, where it's like 90% of the people in Canada live within 150 miles of the border, whereas in the US it's spread north to south. So some yeah. some challenges for sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, in the U.S. market, agriculture in the U.S. is also is heavily subsidized. You know, I, I think the, the two governments have kind of taken a different approach in Canada. It's sort of like, OK, we'll do a cost based model so that you can still be profitable regardless of what your costs are. In the U.S., there's a lot of subsidies which you know allow you to have milk that's three dollars and thirty two cents in Buffalo um, at the end of the day. And so the markets are structured completely differently and there's a lot of different dynamics as we've kind of gone through this report and and it was really born of when i lived in newfoundland actually and prices there are very expensive we just saw inefficiencies in the canadian marketplace and i think there's ways to ensure that something that is a staple item for canadian families is able to be relatively equally priced across the country by eliminating some of the inefficiencies in the market. Do you do the same kind of thing for other staple products in Canada, like bread or whatever? No, we don't do it for other categories. We've just kind of stuck to our knitting um, with milk. To be honest, it's a really good demonstration of what we can do for pretty much any product. Um, And we do a lot of price survey work for specific customers across a wide range of categories. But that data is being purchased specifically by those customers. So the milk data allows us to go and provide some public information and we're sort of doing it from an advocacy standpoint you know of saying hey information is power and this gives you the ability to be a policymaker in st john's newfoundland and look at prices right across the country and say okay yeah maybe something isn't really working very well in our system if our residents here are paying a dollar ninety-five per liter of milk, and someone in Sudbury, Ontario, is paying a dollar seventeen per liter. You know that's a huge price gap. Yeah, and as far as that goes as well, you would anticipate or expect that the cheapest in Ontario wouldn't be Sudbury. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think in Sudbury you have a retail competitive environment that's making that happen. What we see in a lot of communities is that the retailers are following Costco. Costco is a huge influencer on the price of four liter milk. And in Sudbury, you have pretty much a perfect storm of retailers. A lot of discount retailers, the three major discounters in Ontario are there. Costco is there. Walmart is there. And I think that's really what's driving that difference. You know, it's only six cents a liter between Sudbury and Windsor, but it's really the retail factor that's coming into play there. But it is an anomaly because Sudbury is four hours north of Toronto or five hours. It's not a market that's anywhere near the U.S. border or or isn't a huge town at the end of the day. It's, it's a relatively small town compared to, you know, Mississauga or, or London. What do you see the future as being? Because obviously the borders with the U.S. will open up fully again at some point in terms of day trippers going over to buy their milk again. Yeah, I think that's going to be really interesting. We saw probably four or five years ago, a really big influx of cross-border shopping driven 
a lot by the exchange rate as well. At, at one point, the Canadian dollar was near parity with the U.S. dollar. And so there's a lot of factors that come into play. I think initially opening up the border, I don't think we're going to see a huge rush to the border. I, I think as Canadians, we tend to be like, oh, the border is going to be busy, so we're not going to go. You know, It's like we make some assumptions. And if I'm going to cross the border, I'm going to do it to go on vacation somewhere warm or to go to Disney World or something like that. But I think you'll gradually see those day trippers come back into play. Through the pandemic, I learned of this community called Point Roberts, which is south of British Columbia, but totally not connected to the U.S. And so it's literally a point community that in order to get to the U.S., you have to drive through B.C. and they've been isolated through this whole pandemic. And one of the challenges there is that they only have one grocery store and even keeping that grocery store in supply has been a huge problem. So it's been really interesting to see how the traffic flows have changed during the pandemic. And I think it will come back, but I don't think it's going to be a big rush. I think you'll see things slowly return to normal. It's actually a great idea making a note now to start doing some uh, survey work around that concept of what's going to happen when the border opens, what are you going to do? Will you be doing this again next year? Yeah, we typically dust it off about once a year. The last one that we did was in March of last year. So it's been a little bit more than a year, but we typically run it once a calendar year, usually around people start talking about food inflation or maybe there's something in the news about dairy and that kind of triggers us to do it and just kind of say, okay, let's go and get some real information and see where we're at versus the last time. And I just love to be able to see the progression from year to year, right? You know, not just saying this is the price of milk now, but how does it compare the exact same stores, the exact same markets versus last year, so that we're really comparing apples to apples, which is great. Now it's to a new facility being built in Amarillo, Texas by Cacique. To tell us about the company and about the new plant is Gilda Cardenas, CEO of Cacique. All right. So I wonder if you could tell me a little about Cacique. Yeah, sure. So Cacique was started in 1973 by my parents, almost 50 years ago now. And it started really um, by chance. My father, who was a cheesemaker in Cuba and emigrated to the United States in 71 without shopping into a little store. And uh, they were having a demo demonstration of product because of Fresco, which is what he used to make. And he tried it, and he thought, it's not bad product. It's, it's okay, but I, I can make better product. And so he asked the store owner what he thought about it, and the store owner said, well, it's, it's okay. It's not a great product, but it's all we have. Uh, it's all to the market. It sells really well. And that one conversation was really the genesis for Kasika. And my father comes home uh, and starts testing uh, at home uh, formulas. Uh, in the meantime, they've been able to save $1,300 in 1971, um, and that's how they launched the business, with that capital, and two employees, my father and my mother. My dad would leave early in the morning to start the cheesemaking process. My mom would get us off to school. We were quite young then, and then she'd follow to the plant. As soon as she arrived, uh, she'd take over the cheesemaking and packaging, and my father would leave to go sell. And he'd sell out of the first vehicle we had was a family car. It was a 1966 Teal Green Pontiac that he had put styrofoam coolers in the trunk. And he'd go door to door to door. 
And then when he was done, he'd come back to the factory and my mom would leave to pick us up from school and he'd finish the process. Uh, it took them about a year and a half, of my understanding, to hire the first person to help my mom work out with manufacturing. And the company had just continued to grow since then. And we, we like to say we, we grew one cheese at a time and one went to two and two went to four and four went to 16 and so forth and so on. But very, very, very humble beginnings. Today, the company operates four different facilities, a manufacturing facility, a salsa plant. It operates a meat plant, a chorizo, a dairy plant, and a distribution center in the Southwest. And recently, we've just announced that we're going to be breaking ground on a new dairy facility in Amarillo, Texas. And it just continues to snowball in that way. I would imagine that when you've come from a background like that, you never really forget it either. It makes a big difference in the way that you run a company. It does. That's a good call. That's a good point. I, I clearly remember my parents, after we go to bed, sitting at the dining room table with an adding machine and, and figuring what they can pay, what they could hold longer. You never forget those moments. You, you never forget, you know, go, I went with my dad, sort of my sisters, to deliver product. And he was so tired that he had to pull over under a bridge one day with me and have with my sisters as well. He was so tired he had to sleep for 30 minutes because he just hadn't slept in two days to keep things going. It just gives you a different perspective of how difficult it is to do that and the sacrifices required so that when people come into the our business, all they see is this company with a certain size. And we just spend time talking about the path that we do here. Because we want them to appreciate this is not just this big company. This is a family company that started from next to nothing. And as a result, we look at people a little differently. We look at people as people. We like to say everyone's part of the Casiga family. And as a result, they get treated differently. It's still a professionally run business. But it does have a, a family feel to it, if that makes sense. And so you're not just a regular cheese producer, though. You have some products that are quite different to the cheeses that would be normally um, found in some parts of the U.S., like the cheddars and that kind of thing. What kind of products do you have, and are they available right across the country? Yes, yeah, so we're, our main product is queso fresco, which is a neutral flavor, milk-like, uh, high moisture, very different than cheddar or a jack or uh, any of the hard cheeses. This is um, almost, people sometimes call it farmer's cheese, but it's really what is found in Mexico, Central America, and South America. It is the most popular type of cheese. Originally, it's, um, uh, if you have a farm and you're milking your cows every day or your cow, only one, you probably can't consume all that milk on your own, and sometimes you can't sell it all either. So you, you've got to do something that was left over or lose it. And what they would do is they would make that milk into cheese and then consume it the next day. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have the ability to store it because lots parts of this world were very hot. If you don't have a way to keep it cool, it's going to spoil. So you literally made what you didn't consume as milk today. You turned it into, uh, into cheese and you consume tomorrow. So hence the queso fresco or fresh cheese concept. Again, it's, it's very mild flavored but it is the most popular cheese in uh, Central and South America. That's what we are known for. You're going to find that product that we make in about six to seven stores 
out of 10 in the United States. So we shipped from LA to Boston. Uh, so one close to the other and everything in between, you like to say. So I guess you're, you're moving into the, um, the Amarillo area. Why did you need a new facility in the first place? Yeah, a couple of reasons, and they're really linked. One, the demand for Crystal Fresco for dairy products, Hispanic South, dairy products continues to build, build at a good rate. And our current facility will be out of capacity uh, as it stands today in, in about four and a half years at the current rate, uh, we could maybe extend to five. So we had to make a decision, do we enlarge the facility we have or do we go elsewhere? And the reason we ended up going elsewhere is being in, in the West Coast makes it difficult to ship product into the East Coast, which is where, I mean, two-thirds of the U.S. population still lives for the most part east of the Mississippi River. So from a freight standpoint, it's very hard to get there from California, uh, much, much easier from Texas. So we, uh, the main reason is just that. We, we have a need for additional capacity, but we also have a need to get closer to, to our customers in the east. And after we started with 118 sites that we worked with, ended up with 17. We toured all 17 and ended up in Amarillo. It was just a special place for us. Uh, from the moment we, we got there, it just felt like a, a fit. And we're really excited about it. Did you have many places to choose from? Or was it as soon as you saw Amarillo, it was like, this is it? We came out of Amarillo, we feel really good about it, but we still needed to collect more data. So the, we had 17 we were running hard on, uh, and then that came down to four in two states, between the two states, and ultimately Amarillo won out. What are the benefits for uh, for you being located in Amarillo and obviously the, the Texas part of it being able to service the eastern part of the country, but are there any other benefits that you'll have from being in that area? First of all, a very large milkshake that's growing aggressively. So I'm sorry, Texas, that milkshake I think is the sixth largest in the nation, but supposed to be the fourth largest within the next two years. So that, that gives us a lot of comfort. Coming from California, Southern California, that milkshake has over time been drying up because of the population of urban sprawl is pushing dairies and dairies further away. Uh, so that's one. The other one is just the close proximity to the Midwest and to the East Coast from a freight standpoint. We've got a great labor market. We were really impressed with the school systems there. The kids, how they're staying in the neighborhoods. They've been able to work programs where they can teach them skill sets that a company like us would need. That was very important to us to make sure we had that workforce. Uh, and again, it was just the, the, the feeling of the community that we really enjoyed. At the end of the day, I think we landed where we wanted to land. As far as the Amarillo area itself, will you be able to employ a lot of local people or will you have to bring people in from your other facilities? So as a family-owned business, I'm sure you'll appreciate this. We want to give the opportunities, like we do now anyway, to our people first, if anyone wants to come. Uh, we think some will come over. There's benefits to, to coming to Amarillo. And then we'll, we will hire from the local communities uh, once we understand that. We'll be putting out a position list uh, by the end of the year as you start that process. I would guess that the majority of the, new, of the people we'll employ in Umbrella will be local, but we're hoping to have a, a nice number coming from California as well. 
And do you have any ideas yet as to how many people you'll be needing at the new plant? I mean, not necessarily local, but total. Just under 200 is what we need to start up with. And that'll be a startup process, but that should move along quickly over a four to six month process. Uh, so by the end of six months, we should be at 200 is the plan. And then as the business grows, continue to hire. Good news for the local community for sure, yeah. Uh, will you be making the same things at the new facility or will it be different products? It'll be the same. We, we aim to split the facilities up to handle different geographies. So they'll have to be very similar in the products they make. The California facility will be handling the West Coast, whereas this facility will be the Midwest and in the East. They'll really have to produce very similar products. When is it going to be open, do you think? Well, I've got my fingers crossed and my toes crossed, and we're hoping to have it uh, operational by Q3 of next year. Do you think that when, when it's all running and operational that you'll expand the range of products through the new plant? I mean, will you have that capacity? Yeah, we're designing that in. The new plant will be more flexible, just technology alone. The last upgrade we did at City of Industry, California, was now seven years ago, and the technology has changed so much since then that it adds more flexibility. And as far as the new building's concerned in terms of the construction, is sustainability important in the facility, and how will you address that? Yeah, it's the world we live in today, right? Like for example, we will take the milk we buy and whatever, as you know, in cheese making, you get a lot of whey. So we'll fractionate the whey. Ultimately, we'll have water. That water we'll, we will consume inside the facility. So we're not taking city, we'll take some city water, but we'll be able to produce our, a lot of our own water just from the milk we buy that we don't use um, in the manufacturing process. That's one example. We really won't throw much as far as waste We'll consume just about everything we do. And as time goes on, just become more efficient so we have less and less power use for the output that we have. What about energy? Will will it be any like solar or wind or Yeah, that's actually one of the attractive things to us. Is Amarillo is heavy into um, not so much solar, but wind. So as of today, there could be days where forty five to fifty percent of our electrical consumption comes from wind turbines. Depending on how the wind's moving. But up to that, there are a significant amount of wind farms in that area. Oh, that's good. And do you plan on keeping growing? I mean, is Amarillo just the next step, or how do you see things going over the next few years? I think Amarillo is the next step. At some point, we will probably need to think about uh, more geography, and, and we'll see when that comes to fruition. But I think for the next five years, six years, we're going to be very busy with Amarillo, keeping our head down, so to speak. And then we'll be in a position, I think, to take another look at the market of the world, actually. Uh, maybe it's time to go overseas. I don't have that answer today. You know, it's always a journey, right? You never get to where you want to go at the end of the day, but it's always a journey. As long as you're on that journey, you're fine when you stop. And now we have a conversation with Dr. Ari Arbo, co-founder of Imagine Dairy. The Israeli startup Imagine Dairy is creating milk proteins that are indistinguishable from the real thing via a natural process of precision fermentation. Imagine Dairy's technology recreates nature-identical animal-free versions of whey and casein proteins that can be used to produce dairy analogs. 
I guess the, the first obvious question is if, if you could give me a little background on the company. Imagine Dairies, a company was uh, founded a year ago, but we started uh, previously a year before to try to get some funding for the company through uh, a collaboration with the Kitchen Hub, Israeli Innovative Authorities. I approached them with uh, the initial idea and uh, Kitchen Hub put us together with uh, our CEO Ayala Fargan and uh, Professor Tamir Tuller and we created the company. So without giving anything away about how the technology works, how did you develop the technology and how long have you been working on these dairy-free alternatives? Initially, I had an idea which actually came up you know, through conversations from my vegan friend. I'm, my background is actually in biotechnology and I've been working in protein science and biotechnology for the last 25 years. But a friend of mine, uh, Israeli friend that I met in Israel, she was a vegan uh, person, and she asked me, what do I think about this idea? She read about uh, some early work by Perfect Day, and uh, when I started reading it, I said, wow, this is really interesting, and, uh, and I tried to put my mind into it, and I came up with some uh, you know, way to really execute a plan to really create a company that could really advance this to the next stage. And so that's how the whole thing got started. And she said, hey, if you're going to put a plan together, I'll help you to get some funding because this is something I want to advance and save the world and, you know, have some great impact for the environment and all other aspects associated with animal welfare and environmental impact. So in terms of the actual, not the technology, but the process of coming up with the product, how are you able to retain some attributes of the product and, and ditch others like lactose and cholesterol? So, as you know, I mean, there's uh, in, the, in this space, in the alternative protein space, uh, the idea is how do you, you could reconstitute the natural product from a material that you make the proteins, in this case, in a different system. So this kind of technology is... Uh, is known you know, in the biotechnology in probably the last 35 years from producing of insulin in bacteria and uh, host cells. You know, as you probably know, insulin was initially was extracted from cow to give uh, diabetic patients. And then when recombinant technology was developed, people made human insulin in uh, a host organism and everybody were like, was, you know, we're fascinated. Wow, this is a breakthrough in medicine and, and so on and so on. And similarly here, the production of the milk proteins in a host organism is a concept. It's a novel concept or application for food. But it's been around, as I said, in biotechnology to produce protein in a host organism. Having said that, making protein for food applications is being around as well in a host organism. There's a lot of proteins are made, a lot of enzymes. However, tackling the problems where making proteins for food, which the protein is a major component of the food, not as an enzyme, as a filler, as a part of the nutritional value, this it was not tackled be because the problem of the yield. It's hard to really make a very large amount of proteins in a host system in the level that is required for food. For example, milk has 3% proteins, and to, to try to really make the proteins of the milk, to produce it outside of the cow, 
is a major effort because you would need a system that could make a lot of proteins. So this is one of the attributes. You know, once you have the proteins that you produce that is identical to the proteins of the animals, that you produce it in a host organism, and there is all sort of host organism that from yeast to, you know, to bacteria that people are using, even in mammalian cells. Once you have these proteins, now you can do a lot of things with it. You can try to create the original product and in steps. You don't have to have all of the milk proteins. The milk proteins, there is six major proteins in the milk. But you could start and make the first protein of the milk, produce it, and try to really see what sort of uh, application you can develop with it. And then you could, you know, try to find the combinations of different proteins to create the product. So there's a lot of things that are going to be different than what you see in the natural product because it's this technology will develop in stepwise to make all of the six milk protein in a commercial scale and to reconstitute, to use them to reconstitute the identical milk product. It will take time. So the other attributes that you could, uh, you know, generate, you could generate now a product that does not have features that found in the natural product that you don't want, you want it to be part of your uh, new applications. For example, you can create a dairy product without lactose. You could create a dairy product without cholesterol. You could uh, control the probiotics that you can add to the product. You can add minerals and vitamins in different concentrations and so on. And this is something that um, some other companies have been working on similar products. How does this differ to other dairy alternative products that will be in the same space? It's good that a lot of companies working on it because there is a lot of challenges here. We need a community in, you know, to push these boundaries. You know, it's not going to be one company is going to solve the whole space. And there is a lot of uh, challenges, including from regulatory to productions to applications. And uh, other c- companies focusing on uh, potentially in a different or a similar strategy. Some companies are focused on a specific class of proteins from the milk, the casein like company like uh, New Culture. And some companies are focused on the whey proteins, like Perfect Day. Some companies are focused on a single protein application products or in combination. And uh, different companies using uh, different expression systems. Different companies, uh, you know, uh, using all sort of application development to come up with a different combination of uh, substitute of fat or and so on. So features like lactose-free and cholesterol-free, I think it's going to be a feature that will be shared by all companies will adopt this kind of features in the product. But the products, at the end of the day, will be different once people solve the commercial scale of productions. It seems that the major challenge right now in the field is having the material, the protein, the milk proteins produced in a large amount that you could really develop a commercial viable product. And what will the benefits be for companies that are going to be using your ingredients in products once we get to that stage? So the benefits are going to be tremendous. They would be able to generate a product that is uh, 
identical, bio-identical, we call it, to true dairy product, but with a process that the proteins were made without the cow. So it's not just a vegan product, it would provide you, the product will provide you all of the nutritional benefits and the taste and flavor benefits that you get from the cow's dairy products. Where in plant-based uh, products, uh, which there's a lot of really amazing work has been done and developed in the last few years with uh, plant-based product, but there's a lot of products that were developed lacking all of these features. There's a problem with creating textures in plant-based products, problems in taste that is not identical in flavor and taste to the true dairy products. I don't know if you had a chance to test yogurt from plant-based yogurt, not with fruit, sour plant you know, yogurt. And I think there's a tremendous gap. It doesn't taste like a real yogurt and uh, it doesn't have the nutritional values that you find in the milk proteins. So our product will provide all of these features that could in, provide the nutritional value, the texture and the flavor and the mouthfulness that you get from a true dairy product. And will the companies be able to use their existing equipment? They won't have to change anything simply to use your products. This is a, an interesting question. So what you see in the plant-based uh, technology that a lot of these plant-based companies develop applications using uh, dairy facilities, you know, to create yogurt or to create some dairy products. So the assumption that, you know, initially it will be some sort of a combination that dairy, existing dairy companies will use their facilities, of course, that will be allocated to plant or vegan product. And it will be stepwise uh, at one point, that's going to be new facilities that will be completely dedicated just to a vegan product or a non-animal, animal-free products. Obviously, it's not right at the end stage yet, but how cost-effective will it be? Because that's generally one of the biggest issues is that it's cheaper to produce milk than it is to produce from an alternative. It's uh, early days, but the goal is to really be competitive to a milk product. As you know, milk is relatively inexpensive uh, commodity and, uh, and it's subsidized in many places. So there's a lot of challenges here uh, moving forward with the product that will have to compete with uh, existing and old and very well-grounded technology. It will be stepwise, I think, and to create some... Uh, market awareness, to, to penetrate the market, to uh, attract the consumer to use more and more of this product. And gradually, it's going to be a shift you know, from the big company and even from the dairy companies. But we're seeing now that dairy companies are very much interested in collaborating with technology like ours because they don't want to be left behind. They understand that this kind of technology is going to slowly permeates into the market and then eventually may even take a big chunk of the market. It's interesting how it's uh, it's going to pan out. But uh, overall, it seems like uh, everybody's embracing it with uh, a lot of hope and uh, a lot of expectation to really move and start to really bring new products to the market. I guess one of the biggest issues, you kind of mentioned it before, is being able to produce this at the kind of scale that milk is produced at. So the scale issues is, uh, 
is the most important thing I said. If you're not going to be able to really get to a scale that is a competitively existing price of uh, dairy, it will be hard to really have a commercial product. At the end of the day, consumers will look at the price as well. Even if they're willing probably to pay some of the plant-based products is a little bit more expensive to dairy product. But if you look at the, sh you know, the shelf, you could see that uh, they start meeting the prices actually getting very close to milk or dairy products. So similarly here, initially it will be probably more expensive, but over time as you increase the market and the production, the price will go down. And to get to a commercially viable product, you really, as I said, the challenge is you have to get to the yield of the protein, the process that will be sufficiently large amount of protein with a low cost to the existing milk product. And that's, this is how we actually evaluating our technology and we know where exactly where we need to go in order to launch a commercial product. So we know that we, we did all of the evaluation, the economic models evaluation to understand the yield or the process development that will be needed to be competitive to launch a commercial product. And is this something, I know that you've been working on whey and casein proteins, is this something that could be expanded to other dairy products and other components? So, yeah, it could be expanded to any proteins in food. So what's so unique about what we're doing, although we're focusing now on the milk proteins, which are the major one, the whey and the casein, and we incorporated from the beginning a very attractive and competitive technology with, with uh, Professor Tamir Tuller at Tel Aviv Universities that uh, looking at the genomic science, system biology, and computational biology to find solutions in the host organism to allow us to produce large amount of proteins. And this is not just a one-step solution. It is a dynamic process that we studying the organism and the proteins, the target proteins, to achieve high level of protein productions. At the end of this uh, process, we will develop strains that are specifically designed to produce food or milk proteins, in this uh, case, in a large amount of uh, yield. And how soon do you think that we'll see your ingredients in products on the shelf? You know, the target, you know, a very aggressive target point for us is, you know, within the next two to three years to launch the first product. That's what we are, you know, working towards. And we incorporating the AI machine learning technology to increase the yield and to go to production as soon as possible, even if the initial strains that we will generate would not be the highest strain that produced the proteins. But it we will come in stepwise as we optimize the system to reach the yield and the production costs that we want. This is, a, you know, this is technology that's supposed to, it will change the world and it will not happen overnight. It will require all companies to even to collaborate. It could be that we will develop that technology to express a high level and some companies will license that technology from us. And uh, because we solve some really, uh, a bottleneck that is going to be facilitating uh, production of milk protein because you know dairy is, is everywhere. There is no way one company will will have exclusivity to produce this <laughs> to the whole world. You know, 
in human you know development you could see from for example from the development of hybrid car technology to electric cars so we have hybrid cars technology now for maybe 20 years from you know first uh, honda or prius that came up to the market and they you know did very well penetrate the market initially people did not want to use it but i think they share in a big chunk of the market and then what you start seeing now is uh, developing this entry of from Tesla and other companies, uh, you know, the electric car, which requires, you know, infrastructure to support in terms of charging units and charging stations. And we see now a shift in uh, a lot of people driving electric cars where it was unheard 30 years ago. What? Electric car? They have to charge it only for 60 miles. And now it's, uh, I would say, probably 10% of the car on the road are electric cars. And uh, one day it will be, you know, it, it's it's going to be 50% or even more, you know, and it's just a matter of time. Similarly here, what you'll see is uh, entry of products that will be, have part of the milk proteins, part of the features, but they will be better than plant-based. But over time, there will be a combination. And at the end, it will be a fully reconstituted milk, cow milk with recombinant protein and other components that are not produced in the cow. It's just a matter of time. And now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at StoneX. Futures market has uh, continued to be quite active in the past week for butter and skim milk powder. Butter has been lower all right uh, across the curve. We've had a uh, quarter three down around 70 euros on the week, trading around the 39, 80, 85 level. Quarter four has been down around 80, 90 euros on the week, trading around 39, 80, 85 level. And quarter one of 2022 has been trading down about 30 euros to just under 4,000 to 39.95. Skim milk powder has been relatively flat. Quarter three has continued to trade around the 25.10, 25.15 level. Quarter four has been off slightly, maybe trading around the 2,500 level. And uh, quarter one of 22 has uh, been trading around the 25.25 level, which is up around 15 euros on the week. Whey has continued to trade around 1,000 euros a ton. Thanks, Liam. We'll talk to you again next week. StoneX provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that does it for another show, and for that matter, another month. Between now and the next podcast on July the 7th, it's Canada Day, and it's also July 4th, so I hope you have a good celebration, whether it's on the northern or southern side of the US-Canada border. In between the 1st and the 4th, it's also World UFO Day and National Eat Beans Day. I'm not really sure where to go with those or if there's a connection. Anyway, wherever in the world you may be, I hope you have a great week. Stay safe, take care, and as always, thanks for listening.